All right, uh, we have been for quite some time now working our way through the book of Mark, and as you might expect, we are going to uh, come off of that for this beautiful Palm Sunday and take a look at the story of Jesus's triumphal entry. Uh, this is a story that is found in all four Gospels, and uh, for a number of reasons, I'm a little bit partial to Luke. Uh, for, for, for those of you who don't know, that's my name. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Luke 19... At verses 29 through 40 today. Let us hear God's word. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, he being Jesus, uh, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a story about a uh, little girl who, uh, she's a preacher's daughter, and she notices that her daddy, uh, every time he's getting ready to preach, uh, he, he bows his head for a few seconds right before he gets up to deliver the sermon. And so one day she asked him why he does this, and, and he says to her, well, uh, uh, every time before I preach, I like to just go ahead and, and ask God uh, that he would help me preach a good sermon. And she scratches her head for a second and says, well, you've been asking him for so long, how come he hadn't done it yet? Hopefully we don't have too many people leaving here today asking the same question, uh, but regardless, forgive me if we take a moment and, and go ahead and offer this time to God anyway. Let us pray. God, we thank you for uh, this beautiful day and this beautiful place and the beautiful people that are here and this amazing chance that we have to, to just come together on a Sunday morning to worship you. I pray that that is what happens in this place. We have worshiped you with our voices, and now let us worship you with our ears. We have heard from your word, and now, God, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Use me, speak through me, speak in spite of me, whatever you need to do today in order to make sure that the things that need to be heard in this room this morning are heard. Speak to us, O Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I want to start off with, a, with another little story about a teacher uh, named Miss Coleman, and she's spending some extra time with a uh, a second grade boy named Johnny. They just they have a little bit of extra time. He got there early, and, and so she decided to sit down with him and do everybody's favorite thing, work on some, uh, some math word problems. Everybody's favorite, right? Uh, so uh, she, she pulls the book out and, and has a few problems there, and she asks him, uh, if I gave you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many would you have? And he thinks about it for a moment and confidently says, seven. She said, no, 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 no. L listen carefully. I know that you can do this. If I gave you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many would you have? Seven. 
Uh, she's a little confused now. She's not sure what's happening here. And, and so she says, okay, let, let's try something else, maybe apples. Let's say I, I give you two apples and another two apples and another two apples. How many do you have? Six. Now she's really confused. She can't figure out what the difference was there. But she says, okay, good, good. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to do this, but I really need you now to do it with the original problem. So I'm going to ask it one more time. If I give you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many would you have? Seven. And now she's really befuddled. She says, Johnny, I just don't understand where you keep getting seven from. He looks at her like she's a moron and says, I already have a cat. <laughs> you see, context matters. The background information matters. And as we look at our text today, I feel like this could not be more true. If you don't know a little bit about what's going on in this text, it appears that Jesus has come across a very strange situation here. People lay their coats out and offer him a donkey and they're waving branches. Like, what in the world? If, if you are a, a modern day reader in, in modern America and don't know any of the historical context here, it, it seems a little strange. Now, many of you are familiar with some of the context. This is not the first time that you have, have heard this text. Uh, but for others, it, it could be new and it could be a bit confusing. Why are they laying out their cloaks and waving palms? Notice Luke doesn't mention the palms, but it does appear in our other versions of the story. And so we're going to assume that it, it happened. Uh, as it turns out, uh, this, this waving of the palms was a kind of a modern day equivalent of rolling out the red carpet, but maybe even to the, the next level. You see, when we roll out the red carpet, we do it for generally for people who entertain us. This was not a matter of entertainment. This honor that is being bestowed upon Jesus, it's, it's a matter of, of victory. You see, this was a tradition that had been practiced for some time up to this point. These people were not the first to ever do this. This had been being done for a long time, and it was done when a, a king would come back into town after a successful military conquest. People would, uh, would lay their coats out and wave their palms and celebrate as the king came back in town victorious. And so this honor that is being given to, to Jesus on this day, this is a proclamation of victory. And the donkey it seems a little lowly for the Son of God. Why not a large, powerful, majestic horse like the one that a king would have been riding in on after a victory? This detail is no accident. You see, horses were intended for war, whereas the donkey represented peacetime. Jesus is making a very intentional statement here. There may be a victory at hand. There may be a triumph on the horizon, but it would not be a triumph achieved through violent means. The sword would not be the answer to the sort of victory that Jesus had in mind. I don't want to spoil too much of the, uh, the Easter message here, so I, I'll stop there with that for now. But with, with this background in mind, there are several points that I would like to make this morning. Usually what I like to do when I preach is uh, kind of hone in on a single point. Or take a passage and just pick something that really jumps out at me and try to hit that from a number of different angles. So that when you go home that day, you know what that one thing was that, that Luke was trying to talk about. Uh, today, I want to do this a little bit differently, a little more expository, I guess, uh, where I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes or so just kind of spraying you with, with points. So uh, the first thing that I want to talk about is this very notion of victory. Many of you know that I came over here to you from the United Methodist Church. 
uh, a denomination that is known for its emphasis on grace. But this was absolutely one of the reasons why I've spent most of my life in the United Methodist Church. I've never really been interested in uh, scaring people away from their sins. Some denominations and preachers are happy to do that, and I don't know what's right or wrong, but, uh, but I've always felt like the idea of, of loving people into the arms of God was better than scaring them away from the wrath of God. That, that's what got me, and, and so I know it can be done. But like all things in life, balance is required. One of my critiques of the United Methodist Church is that perhaps, maybe, sometimes, that emphasis on grace might be to the expense of other aspects of who God is. A prime example of this can be seen in the naming of churches. I can't tell you how many times over the years and across the country uh, I've run into a Grace United Methodist Church, an appropriate and, and beautiful name. But you know what I've never seen? I've seen it with a, some other denominations, but, but never in the Methodist Church. I've never seen a Victory United Methodist. That always made me kind of sad. I love grace. I need grace, and I am incredibly grateful for it. But part of what makes that grace so wonderful is the victory that precedes it. Again, I'm, I'm holding back here a little bit. I don't want to spoil Easter for you. But, but in our thirst and our need for the grace that saves us from sin and death, let us not forget that grace is only available because sin and death have been conquered, because of the authority that Jesus now has over it. Victory has been had. So in talking about victory, uh, I want to make a, another point here about the timing within this text. This is a really unique scenario, an interesting moment in time. Uh, you see, they're waving the branches and laying out the coats, but Jesus hasn't been victorious over anything yet. He's performed some healings. He's offered some amazing teachings and so forth. But at this moment in time where they're waving these branches, there has, there's not a victory to speak of yet. In other words, this is a moment of expectation. And so I want to take a moment and, and talk about that word expectation. I want to ask you this. Uh, what are you expecting from God? I'd like to suggest, uh, based on following the lead of the people in this text, that if we want to put our finger on a word for it, we already have our word today. That is victory. We are expecting victory. So I ask you this. What in your life needs a victory? And maybe just as importantly, how are you approaching that subject with your mind? Are, are you moping around, wondering if things will ever change, wondering if God is even listening, figuring that the victory will never come? Or like the people in this story, are you waving your palm, trusting that victory is on the way even if it hasn't come yet? I think this Sunday before Easter is a really, really amazing opportunity for us to, to practice that expectation of what God is going to do. Uh, earlier this week, we had uh, family in town from out of state. My, my wife and I are, are both teachers, and, uh, and both of our boys are in school, and all four of us decided to, uh, to, to play hooky, and we went with our family to Orlando for a theme park. And on our way back, Langston, our, our four-year-old, uh, he, of course, was a little bit grumpy. He had just spent the day at the theme park having a great day, uh, but he was tired now and didn't really know how to express those emotions. And so he, he's a little grumpy in the back of the car, and he starts uh, kind of grunting, making these strange noises. <laughs> uh, uh. Nobody's talking to him. It's just, just out of nowhere. He just starts doing this. And, and finally, one of us asks, uh, hey, buddy, uh, what, what's going on? He says, I'm mad. So, okay, we thought we had a really great day. What are you upset about? He thinks about it for a second and says, 
I don't know. <laughs> and you know, we, we laugh, but how many of us walk through our lives like this, so unaware and unintentional about our emotions and, and, and unintentional about understanding and clarifying what our desires and what our expectations are within our faith. We talk about expectations here. Jesus tells us, ask and you shall receive, but how can you ask if you don't even know what you want? So one of my encouragements for you today is to, to go ahead and, and nail it down. Put a name on what your expectations are for God. What is that area of your life that needs a victory? Put a name on it and expect that God is going to be on the move. Be specific. One time when I was a kid, we were traveling to Pennsylvania. Both of my, my parents were raised there, and we had since moved to Florida. Uh, we didn't have much at the time, and my parents were concerned that our old beat-up minivan was not going to make the trip. And uh, my, my mother is a, a wonderful prayer warrior, and, and so she got started the whole drive there. God, get us to Pennsylvania. Get us to Pennsylvania. And uh, true story, wouldn't you know it, we broke down the moment we crossed the state line. An, an, an uncle from an hour away had to come and get us and, and finish the drive for us. Uh, you had better believe that, uh, that mom has been much more specific with her prayers <laughs> ever since. So put a name on what those expectations are. Go ahead and be specific and nail it down and expect that God is going to move. Now, I do caution you to be careful about being too material with your expectations. I don't want to be accused today of falling into that health, wealth, gospel, uh, but be specific. If you are not sure that God is moving in your life, then part of the problem might be that you don't even know where to ask him to move. So take that moment to be intentional. Put a name on where you expect to see God. Now, I will offer this caution out there to you as well. As we can see in this situation, uh, the victory doesn't always come as we think it should. These people are expecting a military victory, a victory that does not come. Instead, they end up witnessing one even greater. So don't be surprised when God does the same for you. But I encourage you today to expect that God is on the move. Expect that God is at work and claim that victory in your life today. Now, I do want to point something else out to you here, too. Notice in our text here that the, the people who are expecting this victory in Jesus, uh, we do not sit on the couch and expect God to move while we're not moving. See, our expectations are presented as an act of worship. The people in this scene are throwing convention out the door by performing this ritual that is meant for kings. They are literally putting their lives on the line by claiming that Jesus is their king. Their expectation of what Jesus is about to do, it comes in the form of a physical act. They sing, they throw their cloaks out on the ground, they wave the branches. Not only are they expecting from Jesus, but they're acting like it too. Some of us could maybe take a lesson from that. We've all heard the expression, uh, Jesus is coming. Maybe you've even seen uh, you know, somebody on a, a corner holding up a cardboard sign says Jesus is coming. Uh, and I bet a lot of you have probably heard the uh, humorous addition that some people have placed at the end of that. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Look, it, it's funny. I can appreciate the humor. Jesus is coming. Look busy. I get it. But it's also a very sad statement about the faith of far too many people. Those who truly expect Jesus to move in their lives act like it. 
In fact, those who expect God to move in their lives also understand that God is expecting them to be on the move as well. See, we don't look busy. We are busy. Busy waving at branches, busy, busy singing praises, busy spreading the love of God throughout the world. Expect what God is going to do for you, but also expect what God might try to do through you. I move on now to my, uh, my next point. I think we maybe get an interesting lesson from our Pharisees today. Uh, we see the, the people are, are acting out. They're waving their branches and they're singing, and, and the, the Pharisees are appalled by this. They come to Jesus and tell him to rebuke his disciples. They're, they're appalled at, at this improper and inappropriate behavior. This is not how a, a good Jew is supposed to act. And so I think we, maybe we see a lesson here in being overly concerned with what is proper in the eyes of God. And, and in doing so, we end up missing what God is actually doing in the process. Uh, Pastor Nathan's sermon about balloons and church did a great job of, of demonstrating this a few weeks ago. If you, if you missed it or weren't here, go ahead and, and get online and check that out. Uh, and I'm reminded of another story uh, told by Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He tells about a young child, maybe uh, three or four years old, and this little boy is attending a church service with his mother. And the boy turns around and smiles at Yancey, who is sitting right behind them. And, uh, and Yancey, okay with getting himself in trouble. I've done this a time or two, too. Uh, you do a little, little peekaboo, right? See if you can play around with the kid, get a little smile out of him. Uh, well, the mother is not pleased with this. The, she sees the child smiling and looking the wrong direction and, and scolds him. Turn around. Sit down. Stop smiling. This is church. Yancey reflects on those sad words. This is not the safest and best and most appropriate place that one could ever smile. And what is? In this kind of no-smiling mentality, there may sometimes be a misplaced focus on being proper, and in doing so, miss the point of what's going on. And don't get me wrong, there is a time and a place for appropriate reverence, but if it comes at the expense of joy you can keep your reverence. I'm going to have a good time with this thing called faith, and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ requires it. I'm going to move on now to my favorite part of this text, uh, which is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. So again, they have come to Jesus, and they've told him to rebuke his followers. They're acting in a way that good Jews should not be acting. And so the Pharisees are, uh, like they've done a number of times up to this point in the text, they're, they're testing Jesus, to see how he responds, and as has become the routine, his response is pretty brilliant. If these were silent, these people who are celebrating, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. Man, I love that. See, on the one hand, it's a little bit of a slight at the Pharisees, kind of jabbing at them a little bit. Look, you're missing out on this opportunity to, to celebrate what God is doing by having this no smiling in church kind of rule. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the real brilliance lies in how absurd this answer is, but also how spectacularly true it is. God will be worshipped. You may have heard the line before that God doesn't need your worship. I think that's 100% true. And usually when somebody says that, they follow it up with the idea that we're the ones who need worship. We worship because uh, it's, it's for us. We need to do it. And I think that that's 100% true too. But it may be, if we leave it at that, I think it maybe misses a key element of what Jesus is getting at with his response here. 
You see, God does not need our worship, but God needs to be worshiped. Maybe a, a little nuance there. What I mean by that is that God is not some egomaniac who isn't fulfilled or happy unless we're worshiping him. The very nature of God requires that he be worshiped anyway. See, God is complete without our worship. In fact, God is so complete that he must be worshiped. As a nature lover, uh, th this is a response that is just all that much more beautiful to me. The idea of the, the rocks crying out, of, of nature worshiping God is, is just such a beautiful idea. It's one of the reasons why I was so excited to get to uh, come be a part of this church. See, I, I knew Pastor Nathan already, and he's great, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, but, uh, but I get to hear waves every time I come on the campus of this church. Like That is, is amazing to me. There's so many people uh, seen and known over the years who, who treat the beach as this kind of like fun party place. And, and sure, I have your fun. I have my fun on the beach too. That's great. But I don't know that I've ever been able to step foot on the beach without it also being a spiritual experience. How could I, as the, the waves crash and the sun shines across the water, how could I not be in awe? Make no mistake, God is being worshiped all around us, even when it's not by us. So even around the world, as church membership declines, as denominations uh, question their future viability, God will be worshipped. Even if we fail, God will be worshipped. The waves will drum, the birds will sing, the crickets will play, the song of God's glory is all around us. Pay attention. God will be worshipped. Will it be by you, or will the rocks be forced to cry out and do our job for us? And finally, I want to close with one last idea. Uh, in, in this story, we see Jesus coming into town to the tune of, of people celebrating a victory, a victory that hasn't come yet, but they're expecting it. And, and so they celebrate this victory, this triumph. And so we have titled this story, The Triumphal Entry. Uh, I, I say we, I didn't have anything to do with it. Somebody long ago uh, put this title, The Triumphal Entry, onto this text. And I think it's a brilliant title. I love the title, The Triumphal Entry. But I think it would be short-sighted. It would be a mistake for us to think that this is Jesus' only triumphal entry. In fact, I want to make it very clear this morning that every time Jesus comes into town, it is a triumphal entry. Every town, every room, every heart of Jesus has entered in, you can rest assured that victory is at hand. It is what he does. When Jesus enters in, it is always a triumphal entry. And so I ask you this to uh, maybe kind of use, forgive me for the, the cliche language here, but, but is Jesus in your heart? If so, then you can claim with confidence that when Jesus entered into your heart and into your life, it was indeed triumphal. Every town he has ever entered into, he did so triumphantly. Every realm he has ever inhabited, he has done so triumphantly. Every heart that has ever allowed Jesus in, he has rolled in triumphantly. And so let him triumph over your life today, your relationships, your finances, your thought life, your words, your anger, your hatred, your fears, your insecurities. Wave the palms, lay out the coats. Victory is on the way. The king is here, and he has not ever been and will not ever be defeated. Conquest is his. Allow yourself to be conquered today, conquered by the love and grace of the Almighty. And so to kind of recap where we've been so far today, expect that God can and will offer victory in your life. When it comes, 
Don't be afraid to smile about it, even in church. As you experience that grace, live it out in joy. And part of that joy comes from knowing that our God is so amazing, so complete that he will be worshiped even if the rocks must cry out. And that worship that comes is part of the result of the fact that that our God is one of victory. No doubt you will hear more next week about just what that victory was. But start expecting now. If there is an area of your life that needs victory today, uh, I don't mean to be accusatory here, but it, it probably means that you have been keeping Jesus out of that area of your life. I pray that you would open yourself up, give yourself up, hand over those areas of your life, invite Jesus in, and I promise you, it will be a triumphal entry. Amen.